Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. man, created in God's image from the dust of the earth and steward over everything else God made. He lived in the Garden of Eden with Eve, his wife, who was created by God out of one of Adam's own ribs. In the garden, life is perfect. They are allowed access to everything and told to be enjoying everything, except the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge. Satan, Disguised as a serpent, tricks Eve into taking the fruit. She ate it and offered it to Adam, and he ate as well. The consequences of this disobedience included being banished from the garden and losing their immortality. They would experience death. After leaving the garden, Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters. The story of Cain and Abel, two of their sons, is the story of the first murder. Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. From the descendants of Seth, another son, comes the redeemer of the world. But from the line of Cain, only evil spreads. To help make the next half hour or so practical for each of you, I would like you to think about these two questions. When life becomes difficult for you, when there's tension in relationships or there's fear or you're just discouraged or bored or angry, what do you run to? In the face of conflict, pain, or tension, or fear, what is it that you go to, to escape pain or avoid conflict? Do you go to work? Do you go to TV? Do you go to food? Do you turn to pornography? Do you turn to alcohol? Do you turn to controlling others? Do you yell? Do you turn to people-pleasing, trying to keep everyone happy? Do you rescue people? Do you turn to blaming? What do you run to to escape pain or avoid conflict? Lock in your answers and text them to admin at centerstreet.com. <laughs> I want you to lock in your answers because it's very important. What you've just done is you've identified what at Freedom Session we would call a drug of choice. A drug of choice is whatever it is we turn to to illegitimately escape pain or avoid conflict. Some things we turn to are good things but we turn to them to run from what God wants us to deal with in our lives and what is messing up our lives, and some things that we turn to are inherently wrong or unhealthy. What do you turn to when life goes tough? Now ask yourself this question. If you were no longer allowed to do that, in other words, when you're bored, when you're upset, when you're afraid, when you feel rejected, When life gets difficult, tense, if you were no longer allowed to run to food, pornography, TV, work, ministry, whatever it is you run to, people-pleasing, affirmation, stroke, whatever it is you do, if you were no longer allowed to do that, what is it in your life that you would have to face? 
an emptiness in your heart, a dying marriage, pain from years of neglect or abuse, a secret, a secret behavior that no one knows about, sense of non-purposelessness. That's what God probably wants to heal in your life this year. In each of our Bibles, somewhere in the middle, there's a portion of Scripture called the Proverbs, and Proverbs are short, concise, timeless truths in memorable form. And this set of Proverbs is God-inspired, God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In the back of our minds, there's another set of Proverbs. This set is not usually, in fact, rarely God-inspired. They're more likely mum or dad-inspired or maybe teacher-inspired. And though they're not in Scripture, they're generally just good rules to live by. For example, cleanliness is next to, show me a verse of Scripture to back that up. It's not actually in the Bible. So feel released. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a few others. Uh, anything worth doing is worth Early to bed, early to rise makes a man. In, in grade school, our teacher always would say that to us, so we decided to have some fun with it at recess, and we mixed it up a bit. We came back and said, teacher, we got it now. Early to rise, early to bed makes a man healthy, wealthy, and dead. And she lost her sense of humor. <laughs> if at first you don't succeed, he who laughs last, or doesn't get the joke. <laughs> if it ain't broke, but what if it is? Well, then, of course, you fix it. And that's what we do with our washing machines and our lawnmowers and our cars. When they break down, we fix them. But there's one area of our lives, specifically in the area of our relationships and families, that we don't do too well in fixing. And there's a number of reasons for that, I suppose. One is we don't think they're broken, so why would we mess with it? Another reason, perhaps more important, is we haven't been taught very well to fix broken relationships. Most of you prepared way better for your driver's license than you did to get married. It's kind of stupid, don't you think? Which is trickier, <laughs> right? And, and most of you didn't even prepare at all, weren't trained at all to have children. You know, you know, it's amazing when our, our firstborn was, was released from the hospital with us. I remember carrying this baby out thinking, you're letting us take him out? Do you not know what we could do to this child? We didn't know anything about raising children. And by the way, if you're a young couple here wondering how many children you should have, don't ask that question. Think about how many teenagers do we want? Because that's what eventually, it, it's incredibly effective birth control. <laughs> We, don't, we, do, we haven't been trained well to fix human relationships when they're broken. And the third reason would be a lot of us think it's too late. And some of us are naive enough to think that time will heal a broken relationship. No, it won't. It may make you cope with it. Time doesn't fix relationships. Before we go any further, maybe we should ask a basic question. How do you know when a relationship is broken? How do I know if this family's broken and this one's not? How do I know if this ministry team is broken and this one's not? How do I know if, if this friendship is broken and this one not? What are the qualifications that renders a relationship or a family broken? If there's an affair somewhere in the family line, does that render a family broken? What about an emotional affair or an online affair? If there's pornography 
40 to 60% of Christian men are struggling with pornography. 25 to 40% of women struggling with pornography, especially if you add in the female forms, which would include soap operas and romance novels. If there was an abortion, would there be brokenness in that family? 25% of women attending church in Canada today have terminated a pregnancy. What about perpetual yelling? What about secrets? What about pride? If there's pride in a family or a relationship, would that render it broken? Well, what if the family is, is kind of intact but barely gets together and doesn't talk about anything meaningful? What about emotional divorce? Uh, by the way, the divorce rate in the Christian church today in Canada is 33%. The emotional divorce rate is when Christians are never going to leave each other, but we both know the marriage is dead and so does the kids. As you're thinking about that, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 4. A lot of times we think, you know, people say, if we could just get back to the traditional family, everything would be fixed in society. And what we really mean by that, if we could just go back 50 years when families were more traditional, healthier, uh, theoretically, if we go back 100 years, they should be even more healthy and, uh, you know, more traditional. So let's go back to the very first family, the most traditional family, which would theoretically then be the healthiest family that ever lived, right? The family of Abel, I'm sorry, the family of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Pick it up, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Obviously, Adam was not in the delivery room. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils and offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor upon Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out in the field. You notice that Cain never took the time to answer God's question. Cain, why are you so angry? Was Cain angry? Yes, but what was underneath the anger? Anger is almost always a secondary emotion. It's a cover-up emotion. Cain wasn't actually angry. He was hurt. He felt rejected. God, I feel rejected. You love Abel more than you love me. You accepted his offering more than me. And when you and I are hurt and rejected or we're afraid, we tend to lash out in anger at someone around us, and that's exactly what Cain did. He found someone that God was blessing and he took his anger out on that rather than answer the question. What would have happened if Cain would have taken the time to answer the question, why are you so angry? It's because God, I'm hurt. You know the symptoms that I just mentioned before, the brokenness situations, divorce, pornography, abuse. By the way, does that render a family broken if there's been abuse? 25% of Christian women today have suffered abuse. One out of seven men have suffered sexual abuse sometime in their life. What would happen if we answered the question, why are we angry? Men, anger and fear biologically feel exactly the same. We prefer to be angry because it's less painful than feeling rejected or afraid of failure. Why are you hurting? All the symptoms I just mentioned, those aren't actually the, the problems or the symptoms. Abortion's not even the problem. Divorce isn't the problem. Pornography's not the problem. Those are all symptoms of a broken or an empty or a bored heart. 
or an empty heart thinking that God loves other people more than me. You know, a lot of us live with, a lot of you, a lot of us live with the lie that if you knew everything about me, you wouldn't love me. That's why we keep them secrets. And Satan controls us through our secrets. Those aren't the problems. Those are the symptoms. Why are you so angry? Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries to me out from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. Have you ever screwed up? Have you ever sinned? Have you ever really blown it? You know you're at fault. You can't blame your grade two teacher. You screwed up. You made the mistake. You sinned before God and you feel terrible and you think you've got to be good for three days before you can pray. Do you know that that's the doctrine of penance? And it's from the pit of hell. Listen carefully. If I loved you enough to sacrifice my son for your sins and your failures and your mistakes, if I loved you that much, which I don't, but if I loved you that much to sacrifice my son for your sins and mistakes and then you sinned, no matter what the sin is, what could you possibly do in three days to impress me? See, friends, we don't have a sin problem. We have an acknowledgement of sinfulness problem. Every sin that you have committed, including the ones you've committed this morning and including the ones you're going to commit on Tuesday, they've already been paid. What we have is an acknowledgement of sin problem, and a whole pile of us walk around with unrelenting guilt, unrelenting shame, because we've never dealt with the sins and the secrets, etc. The sins done to us, which also feels like guilt. If someone hurt you, wounded you, and told you it was your fault, you carry what's called false guilt. But when it's not dealt with, it turns into shame. And it means shame feels like I'm somehow unworthy. Or some of us actually did something wrong. We walked out on our kids when they were two and three. That's true guilt, but we stuff it. We don't want to deal with that pain. And that turns into shame, and Satan controls us with that. It's when we begin to deal with the pain and the secrets and the stuff that's down there that Satan right now controls us with. That's when our lives become free. That's what healing begins to look like. But a lot of us aren't there because we believe that lie, if you knew everything about me, you wouldn't love me. We feel like we can't come to God. You know, two places God always wants to meet you. It's in your sin and it's in your hurt. That's why he sent his son. Do I think you should go to freedom session? Yeah, I think a few hundred of you should. That's a place, it's a community where you can actually begin to deal with whatever's gone on in your life and get out in the open where God can heal it and deal with it. And by the way, also, if you feel any condemnation when I'm speaking today, that's not from God. That's from the devil, and it's certainly not from me. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet some of us feel the condemnation. It's because it's deep down in our hearts. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment's greater than I can bear today. You're driving me from the land. I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to Cain, not so. If anyone kills you, 
He will suffer vengeance seven times over, and then in, the, in, the mercy, in mercy the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Sometimes when I read scripture, probably like you, I feel like someone jumped ahead a few chapters on the DVD, and there's missing information there. And I'd suggest to you that if scripture continued to be recorded at that point, you'd have a gap. And, the, and if it was continued to be recorded, we would have read something like this. And two days later, when Adam was walking alone in the field, he came across the dead body of his son Abel, and he wept. And when he realized that he lost two sons that day, he wept even more. The other gap, I think, falls in the middle of verse 2. Later, Eve gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept the flocks and Cain worked the soil. Have you ever seen baby boys keep the flocks and work the soil? I haven't. I think there's about 15 years of gaps there, don't you think? Memories, birthday parties, family celebrations, Cain's first solo giraffe ride and Abel's backflip off the local waterfall. The first nights, the boys could go camping on their own. There'd be scenes of Adam helping Cain understand how to rest the soil and Eve working with Abel, bringing in a calf into the world, teaching him those, teaching him those kind of skills. There'd be the non-erasable mummy and daddy moments when they check in on the boys late at night in the tree fort, sleeping under the same blanket on the same pillow because Abel broke the other pillow in the pillow fight that Eve told them not to have. You see, my point is these, these boys were chums. They weren't enemies. They were pals. They were soulmates. There would be family altars, literal altars, not the kind you and I have, but literal altars with Adam trying to choke back the tears as he explained to the boys why they had to kill the little lamb they'd been taking care of. It's because mom and I sin, boys, and there's a price when we sin. Both Adam and Eve knew they were forgiven for that day back in the garden, but neither of them lived without regrets. And there is a price to sin, and it affects our families, affects others. My point in all of this is that a couple days before verse 17, Adam, like you or I, would never have rendered his family broken, would never have identified brokenness in his family. Oh, maybe a couple of stress points, maybe a couple of things, but, but nothing that would ever lead to this. And I would also suggest to you the day where Adam held the lifeless body of his son Abel, he would have done anything to go back in time. I think he would have gone back, and I think he would have prayed more for his boys. I think he would have prayed more with his boys. I think he would have taken Cain out for breakfast and said, Cain, why is your face downcast? He noticed he just didn't say anything. And I think he would have maybe confronted Abel on his air of superiority when Abel's offering was accepted and, and Cain's wasn't and maybe would have said, Abel, swap your brother some produce for some livestock so his, his offering can be accepted too. He noticed all these things. He just didn't say anything. And I know we're just speculating, but I also know that the realization that one's family is broken when the brokenness finally becomes visible often comes as a complete shock or surprise to those involved and I also know that it comes with a lot of accompanying regret and we would do anything to replay the tape. Some of you would do anything to replay the last 20 years. Some of you would do anything to replay five minutes that happened 10 years ago. So wouldn't it be a good idea if you and I stopped asking the question is my family broken? Are my relationships broken? And just look at, where is there brokenness in my life? 
Where is there brokenness in my relationships? Where is there brokenness in my family? Where is there brokenness on, in my workplace? Where is there brokenness on my ministry teams? Where is there brokenness? And work on addressing that and fixing and addressing those tensions before they come to where everything falls apart. If God's caught the attention of your heart, then I invite you to shift gears with me and look at what we could actually do about that. I've already covered my first point, and one would just be to acknowledge that brokenness exists. I'm a, I think I'm a relatively good dad. I've hurt my kids. I've hurt my wife. I've brought brokenness into our family. Sometimes I meant to, sometimes I didn't mean to. Of course there's brokenness. Well, how could there not be brokenness in my marriage? Bonnie and I got married at age 20. Um, there was, we weren't totally whole. How could there not be any brokenness in our marriage? How could there, and then we have kids. How could there not be any brokenness? They've inherited our brokenness, plus they've come up with some brokenness all by themselves. There, there's brokenness in every single family. I've just got to acknowledge and accept the fact that brokenness exists in my relationships. It'd be such a relief if we could just give up the facade that there's no brokenness. The second would be, and that's, by the way, it's not to say that your family's right off. There's lots of great things going on in your families. But there's also a measure, and that's where we go to the next point here, which would be to accept responsibility for the brokenness that I contribute. Not, because a lot of times we want to we pinpoint the flaws and my unhappiness. I want to pinpoint my unhappiness on someone else because I don't want to face it. Why? Because I feel condemned then. But there's not supposed to be any condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The, the, the way to deal with this is actually to, to start off and initiate, say, this is the brokenness I bring. And that's why we've got these defects of character cards. And there should be a number of defects of character cards, some in the seat backs, maybe some laying around. If you want one, I really would like everyone to have one. There's, there's more in the sides just because we, we thought that people had more defects of character in the sides. No, it's because more people sat here. But I'd like you just to take that out, and you're going to have to probably share them. If you don't have one, you just put up your hand, and maybe an usher will come uh, and give you one, or maybe they'll just come with the offering plate again. I'm not sure. But um, what I want you to do is I look at that because this is your homework. Not much is going to change in your life in these next 10, 15 minutes. But I want you to look at that and go through them. And this afternoon, I'd like you to go through and read them off and check the ones that apply in your life. But pick the top three. Just look at a few of them. Selfishness, focus first and primarily on my needs, wants and desires over the needs, wants and feelings of others. I read a bumper sticker that lately said, I know everyone's got problems. Mine are just more important than yours. And isn't that the way we kind of feel? I want people to understand me. Blaming. I didn't say it was your fault. I'm going to say I'm going to blame you. We, blaming has become a national sport. We love to blame other people. That's exactly what Eve did. You know, when God, uh, sorry, what, just exactly what Adam did. God, Adam, what have you done? Ate the fruit. Uh, Eve, the woman you gave me, actually blamed God. Self-justification, defending attitudes, uh, behaviors that hurt others. I make excuses, rationalize, or point out similar flaws in those who confront me. I say, you do the same thing. We do this all the time in, in romantic relationships or with our children or with our parents. We would say, you do the same thing. Well, listen, that's totally irrelevant. If Pastor West, who's a good friend of mine on staff here at your church, if, if after the service he came and said, Ken, when you preach, you spit and the front row's all wet. And I said, well, Wes, you do the same thing. Does that make you guys any drier? It's kind of irrelevant. If you're in a relationship, especially in marriage or a dating or something, and your spouse points to me out and you say, you do the same thing, you're basically saying, listen, until you are Mr. and Mrs. Jesus, don't talk to me. And yet you desperately need those people to speak into your lives. I'm going to skip a bunch, but there's pride, there's judgmentalism, there's pessimism, which is not a spiritual gift, contrary to popular belief. If you flip it over, there's perfectionism, intolerance, workaholism, there's violence. By the way, yelling is violence. 
Yelling is violence, and it's one of the things that we don't get as men. For years, my wife would say, Ken, you're yelling. And I said, no, I'm not. But it was her who was yelling, and I did damage to her heart, and I did damage to our kids when they saw me yelling at her mother. And that's a violence issue. And until I actually recognized it, and I, and I denied it for years, and I finally had to admit, you know, Ken, you've got a violence issue. And am I proud of that? No, I'm terribly not proud of that. But I've been working on it. Not just trying. Trying is often lying, right? I'm actually making steps. And by the way, if, if people think you yell and you think you don't, you do. People know what your defects of character are. They know you have them, and you know they got them. So here's a challenge to you men. Lead. Pick your top three defects of character. Pull your family around, pull your wife around, pull your kids around and say, listen, as best I understand it, this is how I've been hurting our family. My pride, I am so sorry for how I, my pride has forced me or pushed me to always need to be right and never listen to you. Or I am sorry, I have been yelling at you and at, my, at your mother and I've done damage. Or my sarcasm or whatever it is. And you know what you've just done? You've given permission for your kids and your wife to be flawed. And a beautiful discussion would be, then the kids go around and say, you know what, yeah, I brought this people-pleasing. I brought people-pleasing. I don't always tell the truth of what I'm really feeling. I sometimes just say what you guys want to hear. You know what you've just done? You've created an authentic family. You can do this with your ministry teams. You can do this with your employees. If you work, you've got a company, you should ask the uh, phone Center Street Church during the week and see if you can get 10 of these or 20 of these and pass them out to your employees and say something like, you know, I went to church the other day, which might freak them out right there, but just maybe not. I went to church and uh, the pastor said, I might have one or two of these, probably not, but I just thought I'd test it. And so I'm going to pass these out. If I was only going to work on one of these issues this next year, which one would make me a better boss? And then when your church has a Christmas outreach or an Easter outreach and you invite your, your staff to come to church, there's probably a 50% greater chance they're going to come. You know why? Because you've asked them to speak into your life. And isn't one of the people outside the church, their greatest complaint is that we think we're a little bit better? And don't we actually think we're a little bit better? We don't mean to, but we actually kind of do. So that be your homework. Ask your spouse what they see as yours. Unless you're fighting right now, then buy roses first and then ask them. <laughs> or <laughs> if it's your husband, buy him some wrenches or a golf club or something first. The roses don't help so much. But step three would be to speak into the brokenness of your family or relationships. Here it is in proverbial form. When in doubt, lean into what is broken and speak. Most of you have organized your entire lives to run away from pain. We run the wrong way. If there's only one thing you remember from this message is the next time in the, in the face of pain and conflict, try running into it. When in doubt, lean into what is broken and speak. Where do I get that from? Well, from God. What does God do when he sees chaos, darkness, etc.? He always brings light. He always brings order to it. He always leans in and speaks. Genesis 1 verse 1. Now the earth was formless and empty, chaotic. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light. He brings light into darkness and chaos. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. What did God do? Did he go up and have a pity party or wipe them out and say, I'll start over? Or Adam, he makes me miserable. No, he came down and says, Adam, what have you done? Where are you? And when God asks a question, he's not looking for information. He's giving us an 
an opportunity to come clean. When Cain kills his brother Abel, again, God said, Cain, what have you done? He knew exactly what he had done. He was why. He loved Cain. If Cain would have brought that, God, I killed my brother. Yes, there'd be a consequence, but God wanted to, to give him an opportunity to deal with that. In Gen uh, Genesis chapter 11, the people were creating their own religious system to, to God, the Tower of Babel. What did God do? He said, let us go down and we'll confuse their language. Did God want to confuse their language? Probably not, but he stepped into darkness and brought light. In, in, right through the, the Old Testament and the New, in, in Luke chapter 5 verse 22, Jesus had just healed a man and everyone was happy except then the religious people showed up and they weren't too happy about it but they didn't say anything and he said, why are you thinking such evil things in your hearts? It's not the sins, the verbal, the, the outward. If you've been in church a whole long time, well, what's happening is it's the sins in our hearts that are the hardest to deal with, our pride, our envy, our bitterness, etc. Why are you thinking such evil things in your hearts? The adultery of the mind, all those kind of things. These were the people that eventually killed Jesus. What Jesus would typically do is he would teach the illiterate in story form, and then when the religious people would show up, he would summarize that story, and he would aim the next story at the hypocrisy of the religious. Why did he do that? Wouldn't Jesus have been better off if he had just remained silent? Yes. But you and I wouldn't have been. It cost Jesus his life. Jesus would have been much better off to let us go our dark ways, to not approach us, to not speak into darkness, to not pinpoint areas of your life. Do you know the Holy Spirit has feelings? And every time he pinpoints something in your life he wants to deal with, he risks rejection. God would be way better off if it was just about him, but we wouldn't. Wouldn't I be better off to go tinker on my motorcycle, in the garage, then address the conflict in the kitchen? Sure, but my marriage wouldn't be. My family wouldn't be. In a work situation, there's gossip going around. Wouldn't I be better off just to let it go? Probably, but the team wouldn't be. If Jesus didn't deal with our pain and darkness, we would all be going to hell. We run the wrong way from pain. How did Adam respond to darkness and chaos? You ever wonder what Adam's first sin was? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the context, God had put Adam and Eve in the garden, said, you know, replenish it and govern the earth, but don't eat from this one tree. God gave Adam the instructions personally. Adam was supposed to communicate them to Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. What was Adam's first sin? It wasn't deception. Adam wasn't deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. It wasn't eating the pomegranate or kiwi or whatever it was. That came later. Adam's first sin was silence. Adam failed to speak into what mattered most to God and most to Satan. Here Adam was on the hinge point of human history. Right there, purity, impurity. No sin, sin. On the hinge point of human history, his wife hands him a fruit, and Adam was silent. Adam failed to say, no, honey, we shouldn't do that. 
He failed to speak into what mattered most to God and most to Satan. Why do I put those two in the same sentence? Because whatever matters to God matters to Satan. The only reason why you matter to Satan is because you matter to God. Satan is indifferent to you other than the fact that God has made you the apple of his eye. Your, your family matters to Satan because it matters to God. Your purity matters to Satan because it matters to God. Your, fa- your money matters to Satan because it matters to God. Your honesty matters to Satan because it matters to God. Everything in your life matters to Satan because it matters to God. How in the world could Adam be silent and not speak into the most important things that matter to God and matter to Satan? The same way I can go and run to my motorcycle, then address the conflict in the kitchen. The same way you can run to your work, you can run to your hobbies, the same way you can run to pornography when you're lonely, the same way you can run to alcohol when you're bored or you're upset, the same way you can run to food, the same way you can run to controlling, the same way you can blame people. We are just as wimpy as Adam. When in doubt, lean into what is broken and speak. So how would you put yourself in the picture? Well, let me speak to who this applies to. First, if you consider yourself a non-family, in other words, I mean, you're a family unit, but if you don't have people living with you right now, consider your network of friendships and relationships and apply this message there. If you have young children, if you're married, understand that the unhealthy relational patterns, the way you deal with pain and conflict will be reproduced in your children. I was talking to a, I don't know how old he was, 70-year-old, fella after the service and he was talking we were talking about this yelling thing and he was saying but I don't yell and I said if your wife thinks you yell you yell and I can say that because that's the situation that I had to come to grips with and he said you know what's funny my my two boys do the exact same thing in your marriages and I said then it starts with you he says you apologize to your boys for yelling at their mom If you've got young children, the way you escape pain and avoid conflict will be reproduced in your children unless you deal with it and change it now. And if you are a parent of teenagers, understand that the, your unhealthy behavioral patterns, the way you deal with pain and conflict, has already been reproduced in your children, but you can rewrite it. It's about to be cemented, but it doesn't have to be. Do not underestimate the power of a 35 to 45-year-old mom or dad who comes to their teenage boys or girls and says, you know what, listen, I'm starting to realize how my pride or my people-pleasing or my my controlling has been affecting our family and I want you to know it's wrong and I'm sorry. You have far more influence over your, your teenagers than the youth pastor. You're not as cool as they are, but you have more influence over them. And then for those of you who are retired parents, in other words, your, parents, your children are all adults. Maybe you haven't talked to them for years. Do not again underestimate the power of a transforming 72-year-old mom or dad who writes a handwritten letter and says, Dear son, I'm sorry. I'm starting to see. Don't say you got it all figured out because you don't. I'm starting to see that I wasn't there for you. I gave my best years to work and I said it was for you but it was actually because I wanted to prove myself. Why did you do all that? Probably, you know, a lot of us, you know, that work like crazy, we're just trying to prove to our grade two teachers, our dad or mom or God that we're worth it. We're not really doing it as much for the family as we say or whatever the deal is. Don't underestimate the power of a transforming mom or dad. It gives them permission to be flawed too. You know, as I get older, a couple things I don't like. One thing I don't like is my memory's not as good as it used to be. The second thing I don't like is my memory's not as good as it used to be. (laughs) 
But one of the things I do like, as I get older, I'm starting to have more grace for other people's flaws. But it's not because I'm getting older, it's because I'm beginning to deal with more of the pain or the mistakes and flaws in my own life. Some people, not too many people, would say, Ken, you're humble. (laughs) Um, Actually not. Pride is a big issue for me. What I'm trying to be is honest. It's really hard to be prideful when you're honest. Isn't it? A lot of us aren't very honest. And we give the facade that we've got it all together. It's one of the beautiful things at, at Freedom Session. By the way, your, your staff, most of your, your staff is going to go through Freedom Session this year, next year. And it's not just to figure out how to minister to you. It's to figure out the issues in their lives. They want to be more godly people. One of the beautiful things about a ministry like Freedom Session is you can actually deal with some of these things that you've not had language for before. And you've got homework you apply to your lives and you can become the mom or dad, parent, wife, daughter, son that you wanted to be. So how do you do it? Five A's real quick. Accept your responsibility to speak into chaos. Don't wait for someone else. Second A is ask for permission. What that means is it's the same as when you have adult children. I can't just speak into my children's life. I have to go to my children and say, you know, Dallas, I'm noticing this in your life. Do you mind if I share it with you? And if he says no, it means that the relationship right now is not strong enough, so I've got to work on the relationship. Or if I ask my wife that question, or if I ask Pastor Wes or a friend, and they'd say no, it means I've got to work on that relationship. They don't feel safe in my presence. So ask for permission. Third is acknowledge your own struggle with the issue. Luke chapter 6 verse 42 says, first, it says, you hypocrite, first, uh, why are you trying to help your brother with that speck in their eye when you got a big plank in your own? And so a lot of us Christians, we say, oh, I can't speak in anyone's life because I don't have my whole life together. And that's our excuse for not getting involved. They're not speaking to this. But that's not what Jesus said. That's not why he said it. If you read the next verse, it says, first deal with the plank in your own eye so that you can help your brother or sister with the speck in their eye. God doesn't want the speck in, your, in the other people's eyes. He wants you to help them. So just deal with the plank first. So admit your own struggle. You can say, you know what, I don't have it totally licked either with my yelling or my pride or my sarcasm or my workaholism. Frank, frankly, I'm, I've been working too much lately, so I'm still in that boat. I've got to work on this more. So acknowledge your own struggle and then speak in other people's lives. The next A is the big one. Actually address the brokenness. All the rest is fluff. And don't worry about doing it perfectly. You learn to walk by walking poorly. You learn to talk by talking poorly. You're going to learn to lean into conflict and pain by doing it poorly. But you've got a whole church family around you and the people that can mentor you and help you do that. The last day is allow the Holy Spirit to bring the results. The Bible says, if it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with all men. It's not always possible. Some of that's up to God. Our responsibility is to acknowledge what I contributed to the brokenness and speak and share if other people allow me to. To close this message, I want to share with you probably my well, close to my favorite verse in Scripture. It's Genesis 4, verse 25. It says, And Adam lay with Eve again, and she conceived and gave birth to Seth, saying, God has given me another child. If there was ever a family that could have called it quits, wouldn't it have been Adam and Eve? No more kids. After that failure, after that pain? But they didn't. Adam and Eve did not let the mistakes and the regrets in the past hold them out of God's plan for their future, and God's desire is not for us to do that either. It doesn't matter. You heard the stories today. It doesn't matter how much we've sinned. It doesn't matter how much we've made mistakes. It doesn't matter how much sin has been done to us. Don't let what has happened in the past hold you from God's plan for your future. And just a little shout out to those of you who are, uh, you know, in the golden years or finishing well. Listen, 
some of you are going to be in heaven in two, three years, some of you in 10 years. You can't resolve relationships from heaven. You've only got the time you've got now. And as a pastor, I've seen a number of people on their deathbeds, and it's amazing how many good, godly people end their lives with, I wish, I wish, I wish. You don't have to wish. You can do it now. What God has said to you, don't harden your heart. Some of you might have, need to have a difficult conversation. Some of you should really look at that defects of character card. Some of you should roll, enroll in Freedom Session or at least check it out. Some of you should maybe have a, write a letter or two. Some of you maybe need to forgive yourselves. Some of you need to forgive some others. Lord Jesus, thank you that your word will never return void and you've spoken to our hearts. You know what you've said, Lord. I ask that you seal it in the name of Jesus Christ. We rebuke any spirits of deception or fear so that you could have your way, Holy Spirit, and what you've pinpointed in our lives, help us not to ignore. Thank you that your conviction always comes with a washing, with a purity, and you only reveal what you want to heal. Thank you that there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus, and so we just ask you, God, to make this a greater place of grace. Lord, we don't want to overlook sin, we want to deal with it, but we want to accept and love and walk with each other on the journey. Give us the courage to, to drop the facade to give a little space and grace to those who are flawed around us. And I ask you, God, to complete this message in our hearts this next week and these coming months. In your precious and holy name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.